And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. We come to the end of this uh, short series through a short book. And uh, if the Lord is willing, my plan over the next few weeks um, is to take a look at a, at a bit of a topical uh, series. I introduced it in the Family Worship Guide this week on Thursday, but uh, having to do with the special presence of God with his people in assembled worship. I just thought as we're changing our place of assembly, it would be good to remember that. It's not that next week we'll be assembled and we're not this week, but, but we'll be assembled at a different place. But we come uh, this evening to the, to the end of Jonah, just a, sort of a, uh, taking a closer look at a portion of Jonah chapter 4 as we've been doing uh, in these, uh, these series. And so uh, we considered this morning... Uh, Jonah's misery and his anger against God. And yet, in both Jonah's complaint and in the Lord's response, we learn much about our God. And what we learn calls us to believe and respond. And the, the question asked by the Lord to Jonah, should I, the Lord, not pity? And I'm going to read verse 2, Jonah's complaint, but I'm not going to read it in the complaining voice that I read this morning because I want us to hear what it is that Jonah says and not be distracted by Jonah's misery and anger. And then verses 11, 10 and 11. So hear the word of God. Uh, Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And then down to verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And having heard from God in his word, please join me in your hearts as I ask God's help in understanding his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. And so would you do with us what you would from your word this evening? Teach us as we need to be taught. Correct us if we need correction. Train us in righteousness that we might live before you. And open my mouth and our minds together that we might behold wonderful things from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in verse 2, Jonah says, by way of complaint, but he says true gospel facts about our Lord, and I want us to look at those again this evening, though we did briefly this morning. You, Lord, are gracious. You, Lord, are gracious. It's the, the, the sense of the word is undeserved kindness. Imagine you're starting a new job, you haven't been at the job very long, and your boss comes to you and says, I'm going to give you a raise. And you think, wow, I, I, don't, I don't deserve it. I haven't proven myself yet. It's that kind of undeserved kindness. Or we see it in the landowner who Jesus speaks about in Matthew 20. And he goes early in the morning and finds men looking for work, and he offers them a day's wage, and he takes them to work in his field. And then again in the day, later in the day, he goes again and finds more, and finds more a third time. And then at the end, nearly the end of the workday, he finds others. 
and they hadn't found work, and he said, come work in my vineyard. And then as they finished their day's work, and he paid the workers, beginning with those who had worked just an hour, he paid them a day's wages. And the ones who had worked all day thought, that's not fair. And yet what had the landowner done with them? He had said, I will give you a day's wages, and you agreed to work for that day's wages. So the fact that I was generous to these who worked at the end of the day are you jealous because I am generous? It's the same idea. It's this generosity of God, this undeserved kindness. And Jonah was a bit jealous because God was generous, but I want us to focus on the character of God. You, Lord, are generous. You are gracious. I don't deserve it. How dare I complain when you show that graciousness to someone else? You, Lord, are gracious. Secondly, you, Lord, are merciful. And we can debate sometimes what's the difference between mercy and grace, or is, is one of them better translated, compassion. It, this, this does have the sense of, of a pitying love, uh, not a pity party, but showing care and concern, especially for someone in need. It's used most often of God in the scripture, this word that's translated compassion or merciful. But it's also used as the love of a mother for her nursing a child. We see that in Isaiah 49. We see it in Psalm 103, the love of a father who pities his children, who has compassion on his children. It's, it's a tender, pitying compassion, mercy. And I think even in our world, we see that people feel that protective love toward children in many ways. We, as a culture, find in our medical establishments often desperate efforts to save premature babies. And we weep at the inconsistency, but sometimes at the other end of the hospital, they're putting unborn babies at the same age to death. There's a harsh judgment in our culture and in our law for those who harm children. Those who've done harm to children often have to be put, if they're put in prison, have to be put in special isolation because other prisoners will kill them. Don't harm one who deserves a pitying, tender compassion. That's the sense of this word. Those of us who are, have, have or are studying the book of Lamentations, you might, you might have read this. If you haven't, you will, and you'll be struck with Lamentations chapter 4, verse 10. The hands of the compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became their food during the destruction of my dear people. And we read that and we cringe. How can a compassionate woman cook her children? It's, <laughs> where's the compassion? Where's the mercy? And so we and reflect, you, Lord, are merciful, far more merciful than a nursing mother or a loving father could ever be. Oh, the wonder that you, Lord, would care for me as your child who needs your mercy, who needs your compassion, who, yes, even needs your pity. You, Lord, are merciful. You, Lord, are gracious. You, Lord, are merciful. Thirdly, you, Lord, are slow 
to anger. I think many people, especially if they have only a limited knowledge of the Bible, have this sense, and maybe you've had this at times, that the the God of the Bible is full of anger. He's quick to strike down his enemies. And of course, when we when we hear that or when we think about that, we've got to we've got to dig into it. We've got to think about it. Why should God be angry? Does God have a right to be angry? God asks Jonah, "Do you have a right to be angry?" And Jonah says, "Yes, I do," but he didn't. But does God have a right to be angry? Of course, He does. God is has a righteous anger at human sin and wickedness. And yet, he is not quick to anger. The picture in the scripture is that God is constantly slow to anger. He declares his judgment. He calls people to repent. And yet he gives people lots of time to change. Think of Pharaoh. Ten plagues. Ten plagues each one of them devastating to a degree. And yet it wasn't until Pharaoh had rejected God's plea through Moses again and 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 again. That's ten if I counted right. Ten plagues before God sent his people out and that last plague took the lives of the firstborn of all of the Egyptians. And then Israel and Judah, they were established in the promised land. They were called to be the people of God. And after Solomon, the kingdom was divided. That was around 900, uh, sorry, 931 uh, BC. The kingdom was divided. And Israel had, a, had a, a succession of wicked kings, often more wicked than the, the previous. And yet it was 205 years later before Assyria destroyed Israel. 205 years. It's longer than any of us have been around. And Judah, though they weren't quite as wicked, at least as blatantly wicked as Israel, continued to turn away from God and turn toward idols And it was 340 years before they were sent to exile. And then that was only for 70 years. 70 years is a long time. Some of us have been around that long, I think. (laughs) Some of you. But God is slow to anger. He continues to be slow to anger. Kind of interesting, the the word in the Hebrew that has means slow to anger, the, the literal sense of that word, and the literal sense is not the meaning, but it's of, to be of long nose. And when someone is angry in the scripture, there's, there's a hot, they have a hot nose. And if you think about someone who gets really angry, you can see their hot nose. Their nose gets red and their face gets red and they express that anger. And so if you have a long nose, it takes a long time for that nose to get hot. And there's a, there's, a, there's a picture there. There's a, a picture of patience, of taking a long time for the anger of God to be poured out. But he's not slow concerning his promise. That's what Peter had to remind his readers. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not willing that any, and I think the appropriate 
implication is not only that any of you should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God has been patient with you if you have come to repentance. And if any tonight have not come to repentance, I urge you, take advantage of the slowness of the anger of God and come to him with repentance and faith. You, Lord, are slow to anger. Though I deserve your just wrath, you were slow to anger and brought me to repentance. And then he says, you, Lord, are abounding in faithful love. Abounding is just a simple word that means a lot, much, many. And then faithful love, and it's translated various ways in our Bible. It's that Hebrew word hesed or chesed. Uh, it's hard to pronounce, and it's hard to, to, to use one word or phrase to define it. It's the covenant, faithful, merciful, compassionate love of God. It's, it, it, in the essence of the word, there's this sense of loyalty from God to his covenant obligations. And, and I hope that when you think of covenant, you think of this phrase, you will be my people, and I will be your God. That is the essence of God's covenant relationship. And God says, I will be your God. Not I might be, not I'll try to be, not I hope to be. And we want that kind of covenant loyalty. We want that kind of faithful loyalty. Unfaithfulness, whether it's of, of a spouse or a friend or a coworker or a politician, unfaithfulness is what stirs us up. It sometimes makes our nose hot. But God has committed himself to be our God. And he calls us to a commitment to be his people. And God took this covenant obligation on himself willingly. None of us can go to God and say, God, you owe me covenant loyalty. You owe me faithful love. All we can do is bask in that. God, you are a God who is abundant in your faithful love love. God willingly entered into covenant with his people, and he will always keep his covenant obligations. How many of you have always kept your promises? Always. Never broken a promise. Never said something that you didn't follow up on. Go ahead. Raise your hand. I'm waiting. I don't see that hand. God always keeps his covenant promises. You, Lord, abound in your covenant faithfulness, in your covenant love. You, God, are gracious. You're merciful. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in faithful love. You are relenting from disaster. And that's what we've seen in the book of Jonah. The king of the Ninevites called the nation to repent and said, who knows? God may relent. Jonah knew. <laughs> we see that he knew. And he didn't want to tell the Ninevites that they were under God's judgment because he knew that they might re repent and he knew that if they did, God would relent from sending disaster. Jonah's saying, God, that's what you do and that's what you did and I knew you would and I'm angry about it. But for us, it tells us something about God, something wonderful about our God. He, you, Lord, relent from bringing disaster. 
Now, do we face difficulties? Sure. Do we face things that may seem disastrous at times? But we do not, if we are in Christ, face the eternal just disaster that God brings upon all who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus. God, you relent from disaster. And then I have one more point. If you're following the outline, you're going to not know where to put it because it's not there. <laughs> but you can write it after point five. Will not leave the guilty unpunished. Will not leave the guilty unpunished. It's not from Jonah 4, verse 2. It's from what I read in our call to worship, Exodus 34. If you have your Bibles open, keep them open to Jonah. And listen again as I read from Exodus 34. Notice how similar these two statements are. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no, by no means clear the guilty? The first part is nearly identical. Jonah doesn't quote, yet you will not leave the guilty unpunished. I don't think we have to read anything into that. He, he may have wished that God would find the Ninevites guilty, and maybe, maybe he didn't quote that part or didn't include that part because he felt like God did leave these guilty Ninevites unpunished. And maybe you want to simply think of God as gracious and merciful and slow to anger and, and abounding in covenant love and relenting from disaster. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want a God like that? But as God reveals himself, more fully to Moses, there's a but. Sometimes we might sometimes think, well, there's always a but. <laughs> there's always a catch. Well, there's no catch, but there is a but. And, and, and we're left with perhaps the question, how can God be gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in covenant love and relenting from bringing disaster and not leave the guilty unpunished? we might be inclined to think either we're not guilty or God is a liar. And may that never be. Because those aren't the only two options. Some might say, well, if God somehow has to punish the guilty, but he, he's this way, he's gracious and compassionate and abounding in faithful love, then either we're not guilty or God is a liar. No, there is another alternative. It is the alternative, and that's that the one who is just is also justifier. The one who promises to keep his covenant obligations also promises to keep the covenant obligations of his people. The Bible often speaks of not making a covenant, but cutting a covenant. And in that phrase, cutting a covenant, there is a picture of harm. I don't know if any of you ever say this. It was something we said in my childhood. Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. The idea of that, I, I think, I haven't researched it, but it's I'll take pain if I don't keep my promise. 
And in Genesis 15, one of the first, maybe the first time we see God entering into covenant with Abraham. There's a scene that may be strange to us as we read it. Abraham takes some animals, some of the animals he cuts in two, and, and, and then there's some birds, and he, and he makes a path. And the pathway has some of the animals cut in two on each side of the pathway. The birds he didn't cut in two, he just put some on one side and some on the other. And the picture, the image that's being portrayed there is that when people come into covenant obligation, they're saying, may this happen to me, may I be cut in half. If I do not keep my covenant obligation, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And Moses separates the pieces, but Moses doesn't walk between them. Abraham separates the pieces, but Abraham doesn't walk between them. There's a flaming torch and a smoking firepot, some kind of divine image of the presence of God that passes between the pieces. And our God says, I will take the penalty for your breaking my covenant upon myself. And that's what we see in the New Testament in Christ. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become in him the righteousness of God. And that's how God can say he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And your guilt and my guilt, if you were in Christ, was punished. Was punished in Christ as he willingly took upon himself the wrath of God for the sins of all those who the Father would give him. Oh, Lord, you are gracious. merciful, slow to anger, abounding in covenant faithful love, and you relent from sending disaster, and you can be that because Christ took your just wrath. That's what Jonah tells us in verse 2 about God. And don't forget that Jonah was furious with God that this was true. But God, rather than being furious with Jonah, engages him in conversation and reveals more of his character. And that's where we come to the second portion. Should I, the Lord, not pity? And initially, and I've got some points here that really God is speaking about what Jonah didn't do. God is revealing himself by telling Jonah what he, that is what Jonah, did not do. And, but I've put it in the phrase of I. I labor. That's what God says. I labor. God labors in this world today. He is actively involved in his creation. Jesus responded to people in his day and said, My father is still working, and I am working also. Our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, says, God, the great creator of all things, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs 
governs all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest to the least, from a great fish to a small worm, by his most wise and holy providence. This he does according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable purpose of his own will, and all to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. God is actively involved in this world. He labors in this world. He didn't merely create it and then set it to, to, to run without his attendance. He is actively involved in his world. We, of course, labor. We do labor, and Jonah labored, but the particular lesson from God to Jonah is you didn't do any labor for this plant to grow up and give you shade. I did. Jonah, I labored over this plant, not you. I labored, so why are you so angry? Our God says, I labor, and he's at work in your life and in my life and in this world, and we can be encouraged with that. And then the next two really go together, and so I'm going to give them to you together. I raise up, and I cast down. And that's my summary of what God is telling uh, Jonah. He's saying, Jonah, in my laboring, I raised this plant up, I caused it to grow, and in my providence, I cast it down, I caused it to die. God is at work always, raising up what and whom he chooses when he chooses. Psalm 75, verse 6 and 7 says, Exaltation does not come from the east, the west, or the desert, for God is the judge. He brings down one and exalts another. God says, I raise up, I cast down. Mary, in her, what's often called her Magnificat, that, that praise that she gave upon meeting Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John the Baptist, and she says this, The Lord has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He, he, he brings down, he raises up. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and set the rich away empty. I, the Lord, bring good. I, the Lord, bring hardship as is best. Kids, your mom decides what's best for you to eat most of the time. Sometimes your dad, but most of the time your mom. If you were left to yourselves, you'd eat thin mints all the time. I know you would. If Dave would buy them and Robin would bring them. <laughs> but your moms decide you don't need thin mints all the time. And they bring things maybe that aren't quite as good as other things, or at least they don't taste as good to you, but they're good for you. They do as is best, and God does as is best, far wiser than the, than the smartest mother could ever do in planning a meal. Jonah, you didn't labor over the plant. I did. You didn't make it grow up overnight. I did. You didn't cause it to die overnight. I did. Yet you pity the plant. You care about the plant. It really wasn't the plant that Jonah was pitying. It was the Jonah that Jonah was pitying. But the Lord says, should I not pity Nineveh? I labor. I raise up. I cast down. I pity. I have compassion. I have pity on Nineveh. The word is used all throughout the scripture. It's a word that David uses when he calls out to Saul after not taking his wife in the cave. 
He says, I could have taken your life, but I had pity on you. 72nd Psalm says he will have pity on the poor and helpless and save the lives of the poor. The word is often in the scripture used of God saying, I will not show pity or you must not show pity. It's often used as an expression of when the slowness to anger of God comes to its end. And yet it's also used to describe God who in his most holy, wise, and powerful powerfully preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions and may relent from disaster and will relent for all who repent and believe the gospel. Should I, the Lord, not pity? And the implication in the question from God is, I should and I do as it pleases me. So do you. Do you treasure the compassion of the Lord? Treasure the compassion of the Lord. His his compassion, his mercy, his steadfast love, his slowness to anger to you is a gift. It's undeserved by you. It's undeserved by me. Never lose sight of the compassion of the Lord shown to you. Let it impact you when you read his word. Let it impact how and why you come to worship. Let it impact how you treat one another in the church, especially those with whom you are members together in this congregation, and let it impact how you treat the lost. Treasure the compassion of the Lord and care about lost, wicked people. Take pity on them. Have compassion for them. I know for me, and I suspect for each of you, there are certain types of sinners for whom it's very hard for you to have compassion. For Jonah, it was wicked Nineveh. For you, perhaps, it's those who are sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or homosexual offenders or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or people who are verbally abusive or swindlers. You know what your buttons are. You know the sorts of sinners that it's hard for you to have compassion on. And you might think about this or that sinner. Such will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you would be right. But you must remember the words that follow that. In 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And maybe in the kindness of God, you can say that list never defined me, except maybe in my heart. Remember that Sermon on the Mount where Jesus over and over said, you commit murder in your heart when you hate your brother. You commit adultery in your heart when you look at a woman lustfully. But maybe you think, I didn't have those sorts of sins. Even so, your sin 
put Christ on the cross. Such were some of you. And I confess there are certain kinds of sins and certain kinds of sinners that I recoil from. And I am convicted by Jonah's hardness of heart. Should I not have pity? Should I, the Lord, not have pity? Treasure the compassion of the Lord and care about lost, wicked people. Care about the lost. And who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from that sinner that you have trouble being compassionate toward. He may turn from his burning anger so that they will not perish, but that they will have eternal life in Christ just like you and me. Let us pray that God makes it so. Our Father in heaven, we don't want to be like Jonah, but sometimes we are. And maybe it's just our indifference. Maybe we're not hostile like Jonah was toward the Ninevites, but maybe we're indifferent. Or maybe it's some sense of entitlement that we incorrectly have, that somehow we deserve the undeserved kindness of God. Whatever it is, would you make more of us in Christ through having studied through the book of Jonah than we were before we started? And would you continue that work in us? And would you be pleased to use our expression of the compassionate, merciful God who does not clear the guilty, but has for many punished Christ, would you enable us to find some of them and to share this glorious good news that they could join us in praising you, that you are merciful and compassionate and slow to anger and rich in grace. We pray in Jesus' name. the opportunity to sing through the whole of Psalm 145, and so we'll conclude with Psalm 145, Selection C. Somewhere in my notes, I have a comment about it. The Lord is providing. He's just. He's loving. And the psalmist calls on us to call on him, to fear him, to love him, or die. Psalm 145C, let's stand and sing praise to God together.
receive by faith the blessing from this God who we will praise forever. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be yours now and forever.